Corinthians. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the church in Corinth. He has identified a problem in the church. And if you remember correctly, he's taking the first four chapters of Corinthians to address the problem of division in the church. Many of you have probably been a part of churches where division has been rampant. Maybe you've been part of a church split. This is what's going on in Corinth. They're trying to, Paul's trying to write this letter to correct that. And we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. We're going to cover the whole chapter. And what's going on is apparently the people of the church, the, the members of the church, the, and they didn't have a church like we do. They were meeting in smaller groups. But the members of the church were identifying with people, with their pastors or with their leaders, more so than they are identifying with Christ. So they were saying, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Paul, or I follow Peter. So it became about sort of the sect that they were following rather than following Christ. And Paul has told them in the previous sections that we've studied that this misidentification is a result of them following worldly wisdom and not being led by spiritual wisdom. In other words, they're following the ways that a normal man would think and not the way that the Holy Spirit would want them to think. And he's essentially divided them into two different groups, and we'll call it the natural man or the spiritual man. The natural man is, is the way that we're born. The fact that we're born as sinners. We don't know God. We're, we're apart from God. If we're left to ourselves in that state, we would follow our own flesh, living in sin and rebellion all the way up to the point where we would either die or we would choose to make a decision to follow Christ. The second person that he's identified or introduced us to is the spiritual man. The spiritual man is is the natural man that has chosen to follow Jesus Christ. It's the, man, it's the natural man who's no longer natural. He's, he becomes a spiritual man when he believes on Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in him. The Holy Spirit comes upon them to empower them to change. They get a whole different perspective or an outlook on wisdom. They're no longer relying on simply the wisdom of the world to navigate the, this life. They're now relying on the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Although the spiritual man will sin at times, the difference is it grieves him because it goes, him, it goes against his new nature or against her new nature. Deep inside, the spiritual man wants to please God, wants to follow God, even though that sin will sometimes get in the way. Deep inside, the spiritual man or the woman, they want to love the Lord and be, be connected with the Lord. Now, as we come into chapter 3, Paul's going to introduce us to another possibility. He's going to introduce us to what he calls in chapter 3, the carnal man, the carnal man. And we'll talk a little bit more as we go along. So pick up with me in chapter 3, verse 1, and follow along as I read the first few verses. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? In other words, Paul is saying, I want to speak to you as spiritual people, as spiritual men and women, but I can't because you're carnal men and you're carnal women. When you were a new believer, I fed you as milk. When I planted the church there in Corinth, I fed you milk. I fed you the basics. I built a strong foundation on Jesus Christ, and I expected you to mature. I expected you to grow in the Lord, but instead you haven't. You've pretty much stayed the same. The word, the word for carnal there is the Greek word sarkinos. It means flesh or meat. It's the idea or the implication that you're allowing your flesh, your body to lead you around. It's used to describe our fleshly, our human nature. The carnal person is a person who's dominated by the desires of their flesh, not led by the Holy Spirit. It's in direct opposite of a spiritual man. 
who is dominated and led by the desires of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard the term carnal Christian? It's been talked about in churches. It's been a label that's been given to different people. This is where it comes from, a carnal man, a carnal Christian. These are people who believe in Jesus. They've been born again. They've been reborn with a new nature, but they continue to live their life by the flesh or being led around by their flesh. They're literally dominated by the desires of their body. Sometimes this masquerades as an addiction. It could be an addiction to anything. It could be a food addiction, a gossip addiction, a sexual addiction, a drug or alcohol addiction, an addiction to sports or whatever the addiction, however it shows itself. It could be an addiction. My body is what's leading me, my flesh. Whatever my flesh wants, I'm going to give it to me. I'm going to give it to it because it's what's going to make me feel better. Or at least that's what I believe. We're carnal when we are led by the desires of our flesh. It creates a divide in Christianity. Some Christians have said, or they've gone as far to deny any pleasure to the body. They would say there should be no physical pleasure in this life. There should be no fleshly desires at all. Even they, they would even say sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. That's just for procreation. It should have no, 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 it, should, it shouldn't be enjoyable. Don't think of it that way. They would tell you that you should live a life of poverty and get rid of anything that you don't need and anything that you have extras is you living after your flesh. They would say that you should not gain any pleasure from the things of this world. That would be one side. Completely get rid of everything from the flesh. Other people would look and say that carnal Christians, those that are living after their flesh, they're not even saved. They would look and say, no, no, if that's, if that's who you are, that's what you're doing, you're not saved because you're still living after your flesh. You need to get rid of your flesh, crucify your flesh. There should be nothing about your flesh. They'd point out those that oppose that, which I would be one of them, would point out what Paul says right here. What does he call them? Brothers. He calls them immature believers. It has nothing to do with their salvation. It has, with, has to do with the way that they're living their life and what they're allowing to lead them through their life. So who's right? Where do we stand on this? You see, I believe when we get saved, when you first got saved, when I first got saved, we were all carnally minded. That's how we live. That's, we, we only live to please ourselves. That, that's what life was all about. I went after the job I wanted. I went after the spouse that I wanted. I went after the boyfriend or the girlfriend or whatever I wanted. I went after it and I, I would work to achieve certain things. It was all about me and my body and my flesh. That's the, way, that's the way that it was. But as we follow Jesus Christ, we should begin to grow. We should begin to change little by little, piece by piece. We should not allow our flesh to dominate all aspects of our life. If your flesh is dominating all aspects of your life, you must ask yourself the question, where's the evidence of my salvation? Alan Redpath put it this way. He said, the carnal Christian is a child of God, born again and on his way to heaven, but he is traveling third class. In other words, he doesn't have the best seat. He's going to get there, but he's just kind of bumping along on the bottom. He's sitting in the back of the airplane, if you will, not up in first class. Truth be told, where are we all? We're somewhere in the middle. We're probably all somewhere in the middle. I would be willing to say there's not a single person here that would say, I never follow my flesh. I've conquered my flesh. That's it. It's gone. I don't, it doesn't even exist anymore. If you have and that's you, come see me afterwards because I want to learn from you. I want you, you should be standing up here teaching this message and not me. But here's what I've come to find out. If there's a spectrum if this is the person who's conquered their flesh completely and this is the person who's following their flesh completely, we're probably all, depending on our spiritual maturity, going to fall in that line somewhere. You see, when I first got saved, I was way over here. It wasn't like I believed on Jesus and all of a sudden everything in my life changed. But I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior and he began to change my life. 
And as more I've matured, the more I've grown, I've come along this line. I'm still not where I need to be, but I'm certainly not where I was. I've made improvements. I've made progress. I've made slowly improvements. But I must tell you, I still struggle with my flesh sometimes. And I would suspect so that you do too. You do too. Part of our maturing is putting to death our flesh and being led by the Spirit and not being led by the flesh. So when Paul's referring to the carnal man here, he's talking about the man who knows the things of God, yet in some significant way is still characterized by his or her flesh. In other words, they know the things of God, but they're stuck. They're just going through this life following after their flesh. Moment by moment, time by time. Which one are you? Are you a carnal Christian who's seeking after your flesh constantly? Or are you moving along the road? Are you progressing along? Do you still follow your flesh today the same way that you did when you got saved? That's okay if you've recently come to Christ. But if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you should be able to look back and go, you know what, I've matured. I've matured. I've grown. I've changed. The things that I once used to say, I don't say anymore. The things that I, the place I used to let my mind wander to, I've learned not to let my mind go there anymore because they're dangerous. They're not safe for me. The things I used to watch, I don't watch anymore. You see, I can remember the very first time I saw something, the very first time I was convicted of a movie. It was just like, this is not right. I shouldn't be watching this anymore. And now I watch things. Now every once in a while I'll turn back into my past and I'll go listen to a song that I used to listen to and I'll think, this is terrible. Why did I listen to this kind of stuff? Because I don't remember it properly. Because I now I'm convicted of it. I'm not the same person as I was. Back then it was fine. I liked it for whatever reason. And now I look and go, I, I don't want to listen to that anymore. That, 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 that's not affecting me the way that I want it to. The church in Corinth was bearing fruit of division. They were bearing strife. They were bearing division and they were bearing envy. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I fed you with milk and not solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you're still not able to receive it. In other words, you haven't matured. Verse 3, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? In other words, Paul's saying, I taught you the basics. I gave you a firm foundation, but you're still carnal. You're still fleshly. You haven't matured the way that you should have matured. That's where this is coming from. And he says, look what's happening in the church. Look around you. Paul lays out three characteristics of a carnal life. There's certainly others, but Paul mentions three here, envy, strife, and divisions. Do you have these characteristics in your life? Let me explain them to you. Envy. It's a particularly strong feeling of resentment and jealousy against someone. Is there a particularly strong feeling of resentment or jealousy against someone? Are you able to enjoy someone else's successes? Or do you always go, how come them and not me? How come God's blessing them? I'm more spiritual than they are. I go to church. They didn't even go to church last week and I went to church and they had a great week and my week was terrible. How come they have their health and I don't have mine? How come can, we can do that with anything? How come, how come are you constantly going back and asking, why is it not my blessing? It's not fair for me. Are you able to enjoy in someone else's blessing? I had this week a really cool opportunity. Any, any car guys, race fans out there, like, like fast cars and things? Like a friend of mine in Florida, I went to visit him, and he got, he got a new car. He got a new uh, 
He got a new Mustang, and it came from Richard Petty's garage. And Richard Petty, the race car driver, has a garage where he, he customizes cars. And he made 14 Mustangs, and a friend of mine got one of them. Had about 200 miles on this thing. Uh, 727 horsepower. It was supercharged. I got to drive it. How cool was that? No, I didn't get a ticket. I didn't get stopped. I was careful. But you can't drive a car like that without putting your foot in it a little bit, right? But here's the thing. That was his blessing. I didn't for a moment think, oh, man, I wish I had one of those. I don't want the insurance payment. I don't want to spend the money on it. I want him to have it so I can drive it. That's the best part of it. But there could have been a side of me that said, oh, it's not fair. I wish I could have a car like that to drive around. I'd kill myself in it. The Lord knows that. But if you can't share in someone else's blessings, if you can't look and go, wow, the Lord's really blessed you, I can even enjoy that then you're envious. And that's a carnal perspective. And the next thing he says, what about strife? Is there strife in your life? In other words, is there anger? Is there bitterness? Is there hostility? Is there arguments? Is there a constant bickering? Put it real simple. Is there a bunch of drama in your life? Are you the person that comes around, oh, here comes the drama. I know it's going to be something. He or she did something. Here they come again. I wonder what it is this week. Do you always have drama with people? Is there always somebody that's making you mad? Somebody that's annoying you? They're getting on my nerves. People just won't behave according to my standard. Is that, is that you? Is there, is, there, is there strife in your life that way? Are you always looking for an argument? There's always something, right? There's always a problem. We know people like this, don't we? Where every, as soon as you see them, you know, they're, they're, here comes the drama. Here it comes. They're going to unload it. I wonder what happened this week. You know, they always make something out of nothing. It's strife. But he also mentions divisions there. Is there division? Have you divided yourself? I only have this group of friends. I don't like those people in the church for whatever reason. I'm only going to hang out with these people in the church. And I'm not going to let those people come to my group because this is my group. And we're special because we identify with Paul or we identify with somebody else or we have this or we have that. There's no crossover. Now, understand there'll always be people that you're closer to. That's just the way we are as humans. You always have a, a core group of people that are your friends and you're closer to. But do you exclude other people because you don't like them or they're not like you or whatever reason? The church should be diversified as much as possible. You know, we shouldn't all be the same people, the same socioeconomic status or the same culture. The more diversity we have, because the body of Christ is diverse. We should be diverse. Is that you? Are you, are you divided against things? This is what Paul calls carnality. If your life is made up of these things, if I'm describing you, then Paul would say you're carnal. And I've noticed something interesting. All three of these things usually go together. Usually it's not one and then the other. Usually it's if you find someone who's envious, there's also strife in their life and there's also division in their life. It usually all pieces together. And Paul's saying, because of what I see in there in the church in Corinth, this is the problem. This is what's bringing about your division. Now, please understand something. He's not referring to the believer who might have an envious thought and then deals with it. Or the believer who might, you know, have a dramatic moment or, you know, oh, I shouldn't be this way. And they change and they repent from it. What he's referring to is the people that are walking this way. They're in the church. They're part of the church. This is okay by them. And they're just allowing it to happen. They're not dealing with it. They're not doing anything with it. The truth is we're all going to have those kinds of things. We're all going to have envious thoughts at some point. We're all going to have strife and anger and bitterness. But what do we do with it? That's the question. Do you deal with it and move on or do you let it fester? You let it brew in your life. You, let, do you, you realize there's a division here and I try to reconnect that which was divided or do I just let it go and I'm not going to worry about it? Christians don't mature overnight, do we? It's nice to know that it takes time for us to mature. It's not like you're going to wake up tomorrow and go, oh boy, I'm more mature now than I was yesterday. 
It takes time. It takes commitment to spiritual things. Are you committed to physical things? Are you committed to spiritual things? Where are your commitments in life? Are you committed to spending time in the Word throughout your week so that you can mature spiritually? Or is the only time you're in the Word is here when you're at church? Is the only time that you're even thinking about the Lord is on Sunday morning? You see, we need to be committed to the spiritual things if we want to be spiritual. That's why God doesn't take us to heaven right away. You ever wonder, why don't we just get saved and off we go? Wouldn't that be cool? Like you get saved, that's it, we're done with this world, out of here. The moment somebody got saved, that'd be really cool, wouldn't it? But he doesn't do that, does he? Why? Because he wants you to grow. He wants you to mature spiritually. He wants you to grow. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, which means mature, and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. The maturing process takes time. You will grow slowly over time. It's the way that it works. Anybody familiar with Amy Carmichael in here? She's a fantastic missionary. She's written a lot. If you ever get a chance to read any of her stuff, I would encourage it. She spent 55 years in India without furlough. I mean, she didn't come home. For 55 years, she ministered in India and never came home. Her name's Amy Carmichael. This is what she said about the Christian maturing. This is what she wrote. She said, sometimes when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent. I feel that I shall never be like that. But they won through step by step, by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories by faithfulness in very little things. They became what they are. No one sees the hidden steps. They only see the accomplishment, but even so, those small steps were taken. There is no sudden triumph, no spiritual maturity that is the work of the moment. In other words, what she's saying, it doesn't happen overnight. The way that you mature spiritually is by taking these small steps of faith, these small steps of commitment that nobody sees. Everybody loves the story of a big step of faith. Everybody loves to hear the story of a radio station starting or a pastor leaving to start a church. Everyone likes to hear those parts. But the parts that nobody sees are the steps that you take to get there. You see, the first steps of faith are the very small steps that no one's going to notice. No one's going to see the small steps in your life. No one's going to know when you make the step to get up early in the morning and study your Bible. No one knows when you sleep in, except for your spouse. No one knows when you make those tiny steps of commitment. But when you begin to link them together is when people notice. They say, hey, there's something different about you. What's different? You're not as angry. You're not as bitter. There's not as much strife in your life. What's different? Oh, I'm, I'm learning to be more spiritual. I'm learning to follow the spiritual man. I'm becoming more, a more spiritual man or woman because I'm committed to the things of the Spirit. In Corinth, they had a inward, or I'm sorry, they had an immature approach to the Scriptures, to the things of the Lord. They were immature towards them. They weren't serious about the Word of God. What did Paul call them? He called them babes. He said, I have to feed you milk like I feed a baby. You can't feed a baby solid food. He'll choke or she'll choke. Paul says the same thing with Christians. You've got to start out slow. You've got to start feeding them things. But we're supposed to mature just as a child matures, and pretty soon they're eating steak. But you can't feed them a steak when they're just born. Paul likens it to this, and I ran across this. A babe in Christ reads Bible stories. 
The mature believer studies Bible doctrine. They want to know the things of the Lord. A babe in Christ wants to know about God. The mature believer seeks to know who God is. I want to know him personally. A babe in Christ marvels at what God does. The mature believer worships who God is. A babe in Christ learns biblical principles. They're principles. The mature believer gains a biblical perspective. In other words, they look at things from a biblical perspective. A babe in Christ fills his or her mind with facts. The mature believer fills his or her heart with love. It's more about loving than it is about being right. It's more about loving than it is about knowing. What did the apostle John say as he got older and older? Love one another. Love one another. That was his message. Love one another. Which best describes you? If you're the babe in Christ and you're a new believer, great, just keep going. But if you're the babe in Christ and you've been walking with the Lord for some time, it's time to start maturing. It's time to grow up. It's time to put your big boy pants on, so to speak. It's time to start being committed to spiritual things and growing, growing stronger, growing older, growing wiser in the Lord. Take small steps, small spiritual steps. Deny the flesh. Commit yourself to spiritual things. And you'll grow up little by little, step by step, piece by piece. You ever felt like you want to go to a Bible study, but you feel like everyone else in there knows more than you do? And you feel like, well, I just, I don't know hardly anything. That's okay. They, they didn't either when they started. It's the way that we all started. It wasn't like anybody, any of us got saved and boom, we had all this Bible knowledge hits us all of a sudden. I learned the Bible by studying it and reading it and reading what people write about it and listening to it. One of the greatest resources that you guys have that's available to you, most of you that live in this area, is the radio station. You can turn on 97.1 and hear the Bible taught all throughout the day. And you, if, if you're like me, you will find that when you turn it on, it's almost amazing. It, it's, it's godly how he meets you right where you're at. I can almost always get something out of it. I can almost go, wow, how did you know I needed to hear that this morning, God? How did you know that that's exactly what I needed to hear? That's an amazing tool that you have available to you. So Paul goes on to essentially, he's going to ask the question, since you guys are identifying with all these men, you know, Paul and Peter and Apollos, do you even really know who they are? Who are they really? And he's going to tell us, look at verse 5. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed. As the Lord gave to each one, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, they're the same. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In other words, let me put it real easy. Why are you so excited about the messenger that God's using in your life? It's about the God that he's teaching you about, not the messenger. Why are, you, why are you following the pastor that he's using? The pastor didn't die for you. Paul didn't die for you. Apollos didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. That's where the excitement should be. That's where the focus should be. In Corinth, Paul had planted and Apollos had watered. But people were leaving Paul because Apollos was the new thing and they were following Apollos. But you know what the amazing thing is? It was just the opposite in Ephesus. And if Ephesus, Apollos planted and Paul watered, which means Apollos brought the gospel to Ephesus, and then Paul came along and helped them mature in the gospel and helped them mature in those things. God uses us to touch different people at different points in their life. It's not a competition. Many times I've poured into somebody's life only to see them walk away rejecting the gospel. They'll, they'll walk away and go to another church or whatever the reason is. If word comes back to me that they got saved and they're growing, praise the Lord. 
I don't take it as a personal insult that somebody's growing greatly under someone else's ministry. They didn't grow here. That's, that's between them and the Lord. I don't, I don't, it's not a personal offense to me. It's not somebody that he, that pastor is better than me or I'm better than him or he's worse than me. It's not about that. I need to serve where God's called me to serve. He needs to serve where God's called him to serve. You need to serve where God's called you to serve and we'll be rewarded for our obedience. Each person will receive their own reward based on their own part. We're all on the same team. We have the ability to encourage and uplift one another. We don't choose our jobs. God chooses for us. We're simply called to be faithful and obedient. Let me put it to you this way in an illustration. What does it take to produce an acre of corn? If you want to grow an acre of corn, you go, well, I need some dirt. I need some seeds, maybe some water, maybe some fertilizer, right? And I can grow an acre of corn. These are things that you can supply with the exception of the water. But do you realize there's so much else that's needed besides that? You see, our mind goes to the basic things that we can supply. Do you realize there's a whole other side of growing something that God has to provide, that God has to supply? Listen to this, an agricultural school in Iowa, they studied the ingredients needed to grow 100 bushels of corn on an acre of land. This is what they need. You ready? Here's a partial list. I'm not going to bore you with the whole thing. 4 million pounds of water. 6,800 pounds of oxygen, 5,200 pounds of carbon, 160 pounds of nitrogen, 125 pounds of potassium, 75 pounds of sulfur, on and on and on and on it would go. And here's what they summarized. Here's what they, came, here's what they found out. They estimated that less than 5% of what is needed to grow an acre of corn is supplied by the farmer. Think about that. Less than 5% of what you need to grow an acre of corn comes from the farmer. The farmer can't provide the sulfur and the air and the water. Where's the farmer going to get 6,800 pounds of, of water or whatever it was? Four, four million pounds of water. Where's the farmer going to get that? If there's no rain, there's no corn. Oh, sure, we have irrigation and we can try, but a lot of times that's not available. We can provide some of this. The point is God is the one that provides the greatest amount of ministry in somebody's life, not you. In other words, the pastor might teach the word, but it's God that does the work, and God should get the glory. The same is true of the spiritual harvest. That's what he's talking about here. Compare the work of the Holy Spirit to our role in evangelism. Our role's minor. Who's got the greatest job there? The Holy Spirit does. I can share Christ with somebody all day long, and unless the Holy Spirit has worked in their heart, it goes on deaf ears. They don't receive it. There's nothing that becomes of it. We can sow the word, but we can't make it grow in your heart. I can come up here and teach you the word, but I can't make it grow in your heart. I can show you what God says. I can show you what the word says. I can tell you how to apply it to your life, but I can't live it for you. I can't do it for you. Nothing happens eternally or spiritually unless the Spirit of God is involved. Has to be him. It's God who gives the increase, and it's God who deserves the glory. Don't ever give me credit for coming to our church and hearing a message that God changes your life with. Give the credit to him. It's his message. It's not my message. It's his message. He, if, if something I say impacts you enough to change your life, please give God the glory for it. He's the one that deserves it, not me. I'm just the guy that he has here today. I'm the one that he's allowed to teach to you today. I could be dead and gone, and next week it could be somebody else. As we sang that last song, I don't control the breath of my lungs. I don't know, but I need to be obedient to what he's called me to do today. Look what he says in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. 
You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each, let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Every builder, everybody in construction knows the strength of the building depends upon the foundation. If the foundation is weak, if the foundation is cracked, the building will lean and eventually fall over. If the foundation is not able to support the structure, it's going to slip and fall. The foundation is the most important part of the structure. I've got a fireplace that I built in my backyard. I had to build it up as my, my deck is up, and I had to build the fireplace up so it would be even with the deck. But you know what I did? It was right after I moved up here, and you guys up here have a thing called frost line. We don't have a frost line in Florida. So when I poured the slab and I started laying the blocks and getting all that stuff done, you know what I realized now that it's been seven years, my fireplace is kind of doing this. It's leaning a little bit. And I realized, you know what, my foundation wasn't right. I didn't go down deep enough to get below the frost line. So as the ground freezes and thaws, it's causing my fireplace to lean. Every year it kind of leans a little bit more. i got to fix it, otherwise you know what's going to happen. It's going to fall over. The foundation has to be strong. The same thing is true with spiritual construction. The same thing is true with our spiritual lives. Paul laid the foundation when he started the church in Corinth, and then other people were building upon it. Jesus Christ is the foundation there is no foundation that is stronger. There is no foundation that is longer lasting, and there is no foundation that can withstand any storm like that can. If your foundation is strong, nothing will shake you off Christ. If your foundation in Christ is weak, a storm comes along, and you begin to doubt your faith. Is it even for real? Why, God? Why would you let this happen? How come, God? And it, doesn't be, it becomes more about you and less about him. That's the problem there. One commentator said this, he said, if you build a ministry around a social cause or a spiritual phenomena or a political objective or a style of work, worship or an exciting charismatic personality, then you're building on shaky ground. You're building a shaky foundation. If you want the ministry to last, build it so it points people to Jesus. The same is true in your life. If your Christian foundation is built on a church on a pastor, on a, on a denomination, whatever it is, if it's built on anything other than Jesus Christ, it won't last. Something will happen in the church, something will happen in the denomination, something will happen to the pastor, and you'll be crushed. Your foundation will be destroyed, but if your foundation is on Jesus Christ, he will never let you down. That's where we need to realize. Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation... In other words, we have an opportunity to build on other people's foundation. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which has been built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as through the fire. Earlier in verse 10, he said, but let each one take heed to how he builds on it. As with any building project, there is good quality building materials that will last and endure and enhance your building. And there's cheap materials. They won't last. They're only going to be there temporary. 
And we do that sometimes because of cost. They're going to decay quicker than more expensive materials. But there's also harmful building materials, isn't there? Anybody building using asbestos in houses anymore? No, why not? Because it's harmful to the people that are in it. Paul warned us to take heed because not only are we the foundation, we being, we're being built, we are building upon other people's foundation. When you come in contact with another believer and you begin to minister to them, you're building on their foundation. What kind of building materials will you use? Are you going to use solid, good materials that will last? Are you going to speak God's truth, share Bible verses, encourage, lift them up? Or are you tearing down their foundation? Are you tearing down their building with gossip and negativity and bad attitudes and putting them down and telling them it won't work? Are you polluting their building? You see, we could pollute someone's building as well. Like I said, gossip, attitudes, negativity. I believe that when we come into contact with one another, we have the opportunity to either build each other up or tear each other down. Which one will you choose to do? Paul says in the coming day of judgment, we will be rewarded. He's not talking about the white throne judgment in the end of Revelation. He's talking about what's known as the believer's judgment or the bema seat judgment. It's where we as believers will stand before the Lord and he's not going to judge us for what we've done wrong. He's going to look and say, your works that you've done for me are going to be judged. And he's going to look and say, what was the reason you did this for me? And he likens it to passing through the fire. And, and all of our works are going to be passed through the fire. Some are going to stand up and others are going to go, ah, that attitude wasn't very good. That was the wrong heart. It's not that we're condemned for bad works as believers. We're not. We're saved from that. But the true motives for our works will be revealed. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Because oftentimes we do things selfishly. If our works stand the test, we're going to be rewarded. If they're burned, we'll suffer loss. Yes, we'll still be saved. We just won't have any crowns to cast at the feet of Jesus when we come before him. Here's how it works practically. Let me explain it to you. Let's say that during your life, and this is nobody in particular, I'm just making this person up. Let's say there's somebody, they teach Sunday school. They come to church regularly. They've hung out around the church. They're always helping around the church. They're always there. And the church would look at this person and go, Hi, what do you think of this person? Oh, they're fantastic servants of the Lord. They're always here, always helping, always serving. Be fan- they're great. But what if you did all these things with a bad attitude? Not outwardly, inwardly. Not what everybody can see because you don't want people to think of you that way. But inside, your heart is negative. Your heart is bad. You talk about, uh, you wake up in the morning on Sunday morning, uh, those bratty kids up in Sunday school. I don't even like them. I don't even know why. All right, Lord, I'm serving you today. I'm going to do this for you, Lord. Or you help out around the church and you look around and go, how come I'm the only one working? I'm the one working the hardest. And, no, and, and no, nobody even recognized. They didn't even say my name. They didn't even thank me. Nobody even said thank you. I did all the work and no one said thank you. You see, the attitude's wrong there. And you, this might never be visible on somebody's on the outside of somebody's life. That's what he's talking about. I'm gonna, the Lord sees what's in your heart. He sees your true motives for why you're doing what you're doing. That's what he says. On the other hand, what if you wake up on Sunday morning and you can't wait to teach the children? Oh, I'm blessed. I get to teach God's kids. Oh, I can't wait to go to church. I want to hear from the Lord this morning. Oh, Lord, I can't wait to worship you and sing. Oh, I want to serve you faithfully. I don't care if I'm the only one there. I'll clean the bathrooms without anybody noticing. I'll do anything, just anything I can do to serve my Lord. It's just great. I don't care if anybody knows. I don't want any pats on the back. You see, when those types of work pass through the fire, they're going to come out as gold and silver and jewels. But when the other works, they're motivated by the wrong reasons or with negative attitudes, they're going to pass through the fire. They're going to come out as wood, hay, and stubble. You see, we can fool each other. For why we do what we do. 
we can't fool the Lord because he looks at our heart and says, what's your real reason for doing it? And I'm convinced that some of my works are going to come out as wood, hay, and stubble. I might think they're good. And the Lord says, I see your heart. I see why you're doing it. And others that I, maybe I'm, that I don't even think about because I think a lot of the good works we don't even consider. We just, they just happen. We just do them. They're going to come out as gold, silver, precious stones. It's a sobering thought that many, many people who believe they are serving God but are doing it in an unworthy manner or with unworthy materials will come to find in eternity that they have in reality done nothing. Think about that. If you're serving God with the unworthy manner, with the unworthy materials, you're going to find someday it's done nothing for the Lord. Yes, you'll be saved, but your life will have been wasted. What you could have achieved and what you could have gained, you didn't because of your motives were wrong. How sad would that be? The motive behind what you're doing for the Lord, it matters. My motive for teaching, if it's wrong, I get nothing for it. And don't think for a moment I get more rewards than anybody else. You see, as I teach God's word, I might be held to a higher standard, but my rewards are in the same level as anybody else who walks in obedience to God. If the Lord has called you to clean the bathrooms on the church, and they always need cleaning, by the way, If the Lord has called you to do that and you act in obedience to do that, you get the same reward I do as I walk in obedience up here. I just get noticed by people more. That's the only difference. But the reward for obedience is the same. It's not like I'm getting a greater reward because I'm in front of people. Matter of fact, I might get a lot of that reward right here because people might look up to me. Where you you do things quietly, you do them for the Lord, and you'll be rewarded for them openly, publicly someday in heaven. The motive behind what we're doing matters. And you might wonder this, why does it matter? Shouldn't God just be satisfied and happy the fact that I'm doing something for him? Why does my heart matter? Why does it make a difference to him at all? Because he cares about what's going on inside of you. You see, we can paint up our lives and make it look good for each other, but God says, I want to know what's going on in your heart. I see what you really feel. You ever had the fear of all of it? What if, what if you woke up tomorrow and everybody could hear what you're thinking? Whoa. Everything that you think came out your mouth. Didn't they make a movie about that or something like that? Could you imagine what that would really look like? If everything you thought came out of your mouth, what would people think of you? Whoa, I don't want that. That's what God hears. That's what God hears. And he says, I love you anyway. I love you. And if you'll let me change some of those things, I'll change them. I'll work with you. I'll I'll, I'll make you more like me if you're willing. If If you'll just get out of the way and let me. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? For the guys that are doing the study on the Holy Spirit, there it is again, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Not which temple are you, which temple you are. In other words, he's saying you are holy. Now here, Paul's speaking about the church as a whole. He's speaking about the body of Christ. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's going to address us individually as being a temple of God. But right now, he's speaking about the church, the body of Christ. In the Old Testament, the temple of God was holy. It was the place where God dwelt. It's where God dwelt among his people in the holy of holies. The priests would have never thought of defiling the temple. It was held in high regard. It was honored. Here in the New Testament, he's saying what's taking place is the church. 
not the four walls and the roof, the, the people, the church, the body of believers as a whole, not just Calvary Chapel, but all of the bodies of believers throughout all of the world, we are the temple. The church is the temple. That's what he's talking about. We're the dwelling place for the Spirit of God, it says. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us. If you defile the church, means to defile the body of believers, if you're treating other believers and you're defiling them, what's he say is going to happen? God will destroy you. He doesn't take kindly when people pick on his kids. No different than a parent would. It says he will destroy you. We are the dwelling place for the Spirit of God. We're his church. We're holy, and it matters to God how we treat one another. Consider that the next time you have a problem with somebody in the body of Christ. It matters to God how we treat one another. It matters to God what we say behind each other's backs. It matters to God what we gossip about somebody. He doesn't like people talking about his kids. Even if your complaints are accurate. They're his kids. No different than a parent would want you talking about their kids. What happens if you get Mama Bear mad? She's coming after you. God says, I'm not going to tolerate it in my church either. I don't want it in my church. Paul says, that's what's causing the division in the church. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that are futile. The Corinthians believed that they were wise people, and Paul is reminding them that human wisdom compared to godly wisdom is foolishness. Let me ask you this. Have you ever said anything, have you ever, have you ever said anything stupid? Like, just dumb. Like, like somebody makes a comment, and you come up with something, and you just, you just wish you could pull it back into your mouth as it's coming out. You just know it's just dumb. And they just look at you like, I can't believe you just said that. Are you? No, you couldn't have said something like that. Do you ever? You guys are laughing. You've ever? You've done that, right? Yeah. Me too. Sometimes up here, I'm like, I don't come back. But think about it this way: the wisest thought of man, the wisest thought man could ever have. God looks and goes, "That's dumb. That's stupid. You don't even know what you're saying. You don't even understand what you mean. You don't even. It's just plain out dumb." And man, we would look and go, "Oh, that's so smart." God says, "No, you have no idea. That's just stupid." If you knew what I knew, you would laugh at that thought. They would be like first graders talking and, you know, in, in teaching in colleges or whatever. It would, be, it would be absolutely foolishness is what he's saying. He's saying don't become proud of your man-made philosophies and speculations. None of us are superior to each other. Oh, some might be smarter and some might be more educated. But when, we, when we're held up to God's wisdom, we're all a bunch of knuckleheads. When you put ourselves in line with God, you see, we can compare each other, ourselves with each other. Oh, I'm smarter than this person. Oh, I'm smarter than that person. Put yourself up to next to God. Oh, boy. We all fall short. That's what he's saying. We're all the same. Yes, we might be better than one another, but when we, that's not our comparison. Our comparison is the Lord. And because of that reason, look at verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men. Don't boast. Don't glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Oh, we're so prone to glory in the men and the women of this world. Oh, we find so much, they're so important to us, we want to boast in the men or the women. He's saying literally, we need to be glorying in God, not in them. 
We get so excited about meeting somebody famous or somebody important, right? What if whoever you think is really important in this world, maybe it's the president, maybe not, well, whoever it is, whoever you look at, this person, I mean, it's amazing. If they called you for lunch today and said, hey, will you come over for lunch, what would you do? Yeah, it'd be great. I get to go have lunch with the president. I get to go have lunch with whoever, whatever, whoever you find important in this world. Oh, I'd love to spend the afternoon with them. I could ask them all kinds of questions. We could hang out together. I could learn so much. It'd be fantastic. But what if God says, I want to meet you at prayer tonight? I want you to come to prayer and you get to hang out with me. And you can ask me all kinds of questions. You can ask me my thoughts, my philosophies. You can sit with me and share your problems. And I'll give you some guidance and some advice. You see how we fall short? We want to meet important people in this world, but we have the God who says the wisdom of the world is foolishness, and I want to meet with you, and we go, I'm too busy, God. I've got to cut the grass. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I just, I, I don't, I, God, there's just other, life is just too busy right now. You see how our priorities get off? It happens to all of us. I think if we really knew the power that our prayers have, you'd never get us off our knees. But I don't think we know it. We, we forget it sometimes. You see, we value earthly gifts. Oh, we like to get a good earthly gift. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, we just put those aside. They're not that important. We value the honor that people bestow upon us. Oh, I want to be recognized. I want to be found. Give me honor. Recognize me. Yes, give me thanks. What about the honor that God bestows upon us? What about the fact that he calls us his sons, his daughters? What about the fact that he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you in this. I'm going to teach you. You're going to grow through this. I'm right there along your side. In Christ, we have freedom from sin. We have fellowship with God. Even death becomes our servant instead of our master. Because we know it's only one step closer to being eternally with our Lord. You see, we get it mixed up sometimes. The things of the world become such high priority. And we realize, oh, the things of God just become nonchalant we become complacent i'm saved no big deal no that's the greatest miracle there ever is that you can be saved from your sins think about that so next week or tomorrow or later on this afternoon when you walk out of here and you have that thought that's just absolutely horrible that you would be mortified if we all knew about god says that's okay i still love you my blood still covers you you can be saved from your sins and a matter of fact i'm not done with you i'm going to change it so you don't have those thoughts anymore if you'll let me But if you keep being led by your flesh and you keep going down that road, I'll let you do that too. You could go through your entire Christian life never coming into the fullness of what God has for you. Which way do you want to go? In verses 1 through 4, we're God's family. And our emphasis is on maturing. We need to mature in Christ. In verses 5 through 9, we're God's field. And our our objective is activity. We need to be busy about God's work. In verses 9 through 23, we're told we're God's temple and our concern should be his glory. It sums up this way. A family with maturity involves discipleship. We have to grow. We have to train each other. We have to spend time with one another. A field with activity requires evangelism. We have to share the word with one another. And a temple for God's glory, well, it requires worship. We have to worship God together. Which way do you want to go? I believe this morning is a warning for us. Are we carnal and are we failing to mature in our walk with Christ? Are we just happy with going through life saying, oh, I'm saved, I'll get in on the third class ticket to heaven and I'll get there and realize I wasted my life? Or do we go, you know what, Lord, I need to mature. I need to grow. 
I know there's some things that you want to deal with in my life. And here's what I've found out. Oftentimes the things that I think that God should deal with in my life, they're not what he wants to deal with. I look and I think, well, this is the problem. If I could just take care of this problem, then I'd be good. God says, oh, no, you have no idea. You think that's the problem. If you'll just let me work on this problem over here, that'll take care of itself. You see, that's, why, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Lord, what do you want to change in me? What do you want to do in me? You show me where I'm living for the flesh so that we can change it together. And I can say no to the flesh and I can grow spiritually. That's what it's all about. So which direction are you going to go? The choice is yours this morning. Father, we just come before you. And Lord, as we hear this message, this carnal Christian that Paul describes of a person who believes on Jesus, but yet their life is filled with the leading of the flesh. Lord, we didn't come here this morning just so we'd feel good about ourselves. We came here this morning to hear from you. And this is where we happen to be in our study. So Lord, I just pray that your word would convict those that need to be convicted. I pray that it would be encouraging to those that need encouragement. Lord, I pray that we'd all look back and say, look, yes, we're not where we want to be, but we, we have matured. We're not the same place we were. We'd look at those trials in our life and say, wow, another opportunity to grow. Another opportunity to see what really is in our heart. Oftentimes, before we hit the trials, we think we got it set, and then the trial comes and we realize who we really are. God doesn't need the trial to know who we, are, who we really are. He already knows. You know who needs the trial? Lord, we do. You need to show us who we really are. So thank you for those opportunities and those times where you show us. Lord, may we become more dependent upon you. May we not be natural men. If there's somebody here that doesn't know you, Lord, may they choose today to follow you and believe that you've died for their sins. May they be forgiven for their sins and enter into the family of God and that become that spiritual man. May they begin to lay aside the carnal things of the flesh, being led by the Spirit. Father, oftentimes the Holy Spirit is made weird or strange. It's not weird or strange at all. It's the power that comes upon us to lead us and guide us in your ways. It's the power that comes upon us to change us. So bring the Holy Spirit upon us, Lord. May we see you at work in our life this week. May you convict us of where we need to be convicted. May we respond to your conviction, Lord, maturing as believers. May we not just stay where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen.